So Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus giving us the Beatitudes, supreme blessings. Last time here, we saw Jesus talk about some commands. Before that, we saw the two attitudes, these blessings and these woes. And now in the portion that we read here, he gives us some illustrations for those. So we see the house with a good foundation and the house with a poor foundation. We see this idea of fruit bearing. We see this idea of the beam or the speck in the eye. And then we see this idea of the blind leading the blind. So I want us to consider these illustrations that he gives us here today in his sermon. But don't lose sight of the fact as we go through this that what we just read here is actually Jesus' sermon. This is the text of the sermon that he preached here. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. But what a wonderful treasure we hold in our hands to be able to read the very words of Christ and to think when he gathered these people together at this time, this is what he felt like they needed to hear. Let me quickly give you a review. In verse 20 through 26, he preached about our attitude toward our circumstances. Then in 27 through 38, he preached about our attitude toward other people. Then 39 through 45, our attitude toward ourselves. And then 46 through 49, our attitude toward God. And here he emphasizes four essentials to true happiness, faith in God, love toward others, honesty with ourselves, and obedience toward God. In presenting the two attitudes, the blessing and the woe, he kind of presents two sets of standards. And I think we could be presented with a choice here this morning. What are you pursuing in life? Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who weep, who are hated. That's verse 20 through 23. Or woe to you who are rich, full, laugh, and are well spoken of. In verse 24 through 26. Behind that then, he gives some commands for living. And remember we said last week, this is not a, a subset of things that we, we live by. And if we have them, we've achieved. Brother Homer did a wonderful job this morning in Colossians 2 dealing with that in regards to a legalistic approach to the Christian life. It's comfortable for us to be able to say, well, I've done all of these things and I haven't done any of these things, so I must be right with God. Or even to be able to say, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this and I'm working on there. Eventually I'm going to get there. It's not the Christian life at all. In fact, that's not grace. Brother Homer quickly reminded us that grace is sufficient. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. When we're weak, he is strong. So we must be very careful here as we hear Jesus' sermon on the mount to not misunderstand the tone and the tense. To not misunderstand his point and his approach to what he is saying to us here. So he goes on to say, love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Even if they insult you and even if they steal from you. And he takes that further and he says, I want you to be generous, selfless. I want you to treat others like you hope they will treat you. And then in illustrating that phrase, he, said, he, he, he gives this point of view. I want you to treat others like you would, you would treat yourself if you were the one doing the treating. Is that how you guys do it at Dairy Queen? I saw a great sign this week. It said, it was a Dairy Queen sign. And that on their sign, they had said, uh, ruining your New Year's resolution since. And it was whatever year they started. 1927 or something. Yeah, this is truth. 
But if you're going to the Dairy Queen today and you were going to order yourself a, a Sunday, would you just get a you know a small ice cream with no toppings, or would you get the one with the, the extra Reese's cut pieces put inside of there? What would you do if you're ordering for somebody else? Well, I heard you could use an ice cream and I bring you one. I'm going by Dairy Queen. What would you like? Oh, just a vanilla. Would you get them just a vanilla ice cream or would you get them the one with the extra Reese's toppings inside and some whipped cream on top and some chocolate syrup maybe? Treat others the way you hope that they would treat you. Do for them as if you were doing for yourself. Love others, he says in verse 32. Not just those who love you. Don't, don't only do reciprocal good, he says in verse 33. Verse 34, he says, be givers. Give and don't be lenders. So when you give, don't expect it back in return. Just give it. And then in verse 35, he kind of summarizes all of that that he said that to that point and makes the point that all of this leads to great reward in life now, but especially in life later. He goes on in verse 36 through 38 to talk about being merciful. Verse 36, we're to be merciful like God is merciful to us. Verse 37, we're to be forgiving. Verse 38, again, he brings giving back into this thing. And it's funny how that is. I think one of you said this on the way out last, yeah, last Sunday. One of you said this to me on the way out. We, we can't live out any of this as long as we're still thinking it's ours. Is this yours or is this his that he's let you steward over? If everything we have is just simply that which he's allowed us to steward over. And that applies even to just your time. Your talents. Your things. Is in, are you owner of any of this? No, we're not owners of any of this. In fact, biblically speaking, under the true gospel, we are simply slaves. So not only do we own nothing, but we are not free. We are owned by him. For you are not your own. You've been bought by the great price. And I get that that's not popular in the modern era. We don't want to be those wild Bible thumpers with crazy eyes who are using the word slave freely. In fact, it's sadly been misinterpreted often in the English Bible just to be politically correct. I don't want my Bible to be politically correct. Do you? I want it to be heavenly correct. Well, heavenly correct is this idea that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. And as not our own, then everything that exists in our lives is not our own. When we see that it is not our own, then it is no problem for me if God lays these things on me, but tells me, don't hold on to those things. You give these things to this guy. It's easy for me to give these things to this guy because they weren't mine to start with. God has given me this time. As long as lungs are breathing air and cognitive thoughts are going through the brain. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> lungs are breathing air. Then this is time God has given me. So if God burdens me to use this time in a way that wouldn't be the leisure that I would choose, how dare I do anything other with that time? And on and on and on it goes there. This is what Jesus is preaching here. Now we get to our point today, which are these illustrations. And this sermon shows us Jesus' concern for his people to have a proper understanding of the things of God. And we get three illustrations to make that point here. First, 
In verse 39 and 40, a blind man cannot lead a blind man. Verse 39, and he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And we can all answer the rhetorical question there from verse number 39. Can the blind lead the blind? Not at all. They would both fall into the ditch. So this is intended to be critical directly to the leadership of Israel at this time. Jesus is saying here, you guys are blind toward me as the Christ. He, he said to them in John's gospel, I am the way. I am the life. I said that wrong. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The, they were misunderstanding who he was and what he was there for. Even those who were embracing him were misunderstanding his usefulness to them at that time. They were seeing him as kick out the Romans. But many, especially the religious leaders of that day, were resisting him because they were saying, who are you and by what authority do you speak this way? Leaving off that he was the son of God, that he was Emmanuel, God with us, come to take away the sins of God's people. So Jesus says to the leadership of that day, can the blind lead the blind? He says to his followers here, in regards to the leadership of the, that day, they don't see. They're blind toward Christ, but they are still leading away and they're going to lead you off into a ditch. Well, the understanding is still clear for you and I now. We're, we are all spiritually blind apart from the enlightening that we receive through the Holy Spirit of God. So we must be careful that we are being led by Him and not by others. Now this is not to say that we should never be led by others because you, you've entrusted your time right now to me to lead you in the Word. Right? We understand that that's, that's okay as long as I'm leading you in the Word. But we must be very careful that this is Holy Spirit leading in the Word and not my own. There are many times that I go home and even though some of you might have said, that was a good sermon tonight or this morning. And my own wife may say, what's, what's the matter with you? I thought you did pretty good. I know down inside that I failed my master as his slave because chance led the study instead of the Holy Spirit leading the study. There's nothing worse than getting up in the pulpit and the Holy Spirit of God not doing the preaching. And those of you who have ears to hear, you can typically sense when it is the Holy Spirit versus when it is mere man's words. So we must be careful that we are being led by him and not by others. We also must be careful how we are leading others. And all of this is sound when we are relying solely upon the word because we know the word is sufficient. How do I know if this person is leading me according to the Holy Spirit? Was he giving you the word of God? Well, then that's the spirit. If he's not giving you the word of God, then that's not according to the Holy Spirit. Riken says here, we need to see the Bible as the perfect truth of God's holy word. We need to see the majesty of God and his awesome power. We need to see the sinfulness of our sin and our desperate need for mercy. We need to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. We need to see how the spirit works to bring spiritual change. And only then can we lead our children or our church in a way that is right. 
Otherwise, we will only lead people astray. So we must not be like the blind, being led by the blind. And we must not be those blind trying to lead the blind. All of this is cured by a focus on the Word of God. So we read the Word and preach the Word and pray the Word and sing the Word. So we lead our times in our homes through the Word. On a less doctrinal note, R.C. Sproul writes here in his commentary of Luke about Alice in Wonderland. Any Alice in Wonderland fans here this morning? I need some clarification. Okay, some of you. I, I, don't, I grew up with a sister, but she was five years older than me. I, I was forced to watch Little Mermaid as a boy. I don't remember Alice in Wonderland. I, I can like picture it in my head just a little bit. So I want to talk to you this morning about Alice coming in contact with a cat. But what's the cat's name? What is it? Cheshire. Okay, I was afraid I wasn't going to say it properly. So I got it. Cheshire cat. So Alice comes to a fork in the road. And I'm just, this is, if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul, this is comical to me that you're reading along and this dude's just dumping doctrine on you. And um, then all of a sudden he starts talking about Alice in Wonderland. So here's what he says. Alice came to a fork in the road. And she hesitated, not knowing which way to turn. She saw the Cheshire cat sitting there and grinning at her. Now, I don't understand the connotation there. Is the Cheshire cat a deceiver? Is this the idea? Okay, going to lead her astray. The cat asked her what the matter was, and she replied, I don't know which way I should turn. I don't know whether to go to the right or to the left. Can you help me? And the cat said, that depends on where you are going. Alice said, I don't know. And the cat grinned and said, then it doesn't matter. It's no different for us in the scriptures. Is it the blind leading the blind? Are you being led in a way that you know where you are going? If you don't know where you're going, then it doesn't matter. Now, for those of you who I lost you at Alice in Wonderland, I'll try to get you back now with golf, which I'm learning doesn't, doesn't get a lot of you back either. When I first started playing golf, a guy took me to the driving range and he said, I'm going to teach you how to play golf. And I said, thank you, because I didn't know how to play golf. I thought I knew how to play golf. I had seen golf on the TV. I had played baseball. You know, you, you hit a ball with a stick. How hard can it be? So to teach me that I didn't know how to play golf, he said, Put, just get your, get your driver out. That's the one you want to hit. It makes the ball go far. And he said, just whack away. Well, after I'd missed the ball about eight or nine times, I said, okay, he's teaching me how to play golf. And he taught me how to address the ball and how to swing properly and make contact and all of this stuff. And I thought I was doing really good. I was, I was hitting the ball and the ball was flying through the air and it was landing in grass. But if you've ever been to a driving range, you notice there's a difference in the driving range and the actual golf course. The driving range is wide open so that a lot of people can stand up there and hit golf balls out into this football field sized area. I wasn't aiming at anything. I was just trying to make the ball fly through the air and land on the grass. And he said, okay, now what are you aiming at? I, said, I don't know. I'm just trying not to look stupid, missing the ball like I was to start with there. And he said, okay, well, you're making good contact, but I want you to aim at something and see if you can hit it. And I said, all right, what do you want me to aim at? He said, see that flag out there? Aim at that flag. Okay. I didn't get anywhere near that flag. In fact, when he told me to start aiming for that flag, I realized how horrible I was doing, even though I still wasn't missing the ball. Well, this is the idea Jesus is presenting to us here. Same as Alice in Wonderland and the Cheshire Cat. 
If you don't know which way you're trying to go, well, then it doesn't matter which way I tell you to go. Aim at nothing and you'll hit it how often? Every single time. Jesus says here, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Now he elaborates in verse 40 to include that disciples cannot lead disciples. They must have a master who leads them all. Verse 40 says, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Surely disciples can help others. But in the end, there has to be authority. There has to be wisdom. There has to be the experience of the master. I was watching the news on the day that we got snow this week. I don't even remember what day that was. But it, it started after a lot of people had already taken off to go to work. And so I was watching the news and I'm sorry if this was any of you, but it was fun to watch Tennesseans try to drive in snow and they couldn't do it. And this new, you know, they have these cameras on the highways to watch the traffic. And I was watching all these people spin out and turn around. It's kind of fun to watch. Is that anybody that I offend anybody here? Okay. Yeah. I mean, just stay home, right? That's, that's what Tennesseans do. We're Southerners. You don't get out. You stay in your house. Anyways. So the DOT director for the area calls in on the phone. Now, I'm, I'm DOT biased. TDOT, my father, was a county maintenance foreman for 30-something years for the Georgia Department of Transportation in the area where we live. So if a bridge was out, he was the guy they called. If there was a roadkill on the side of the road, he was the guy they called. I, as a little boy, that was a, a fun hobby for me, was dad would get called in the after hours and say, there's a cow in the road, you need to go get it out. And so dad and I would go and we'd drag this cow out of the road and we'd turn on the light on the top of his orange truck. This is how I grew up. So I'm listening to these news reporters and they are quizzing the director of traffic and roads for Nashville, Davidson County about this four inches of snow that just fell in an hour. And they told people to stay home and stay off the roads. And if you don't stay off the roads, you're going to clog the roads. And then what can't the dump trucks do? Y'all have common sense, right? But I'm, <laughs> I'm listening to these people that work at this television station. I'll make an alternate point to you here. Don't take everything that people from television stations say as facts. They're quizzing this guy about, well, could y'all not just put more people out to work to get the roads cleaned up faster? Does somebody with common sense explain to me why that's a bad question? Well, number one, and that's what the director for TDOT said, ma'am, we already have everybody out. But the director for TDOT had just explained to them we could be plowing the roads quicker, except all the cars have the roads blocked. So to plow the roads, we also had to plow the cars. Jesus is making that point here very well. Disciples can help disciples, but in the end, there has to be a master. There has to be an authority. The disciple is not above his master, but every that one that is perfect shall be as his master. When I was... Earlier in ministry, I worked for a Christian school in Georgia. And part of that, my duties there were coaching basketball. And once a year, we'd go to Clearwater Christian, Florida, down near Tampa, Florida, playing a, a January tournament down there. It was nice. You'd get down there, and it was 80 degrees, and it was cold up here. And we'd always stop halfway there because it was a long trip. On, you had to get there by Thursday morning, so we'd take off Wednesday, stop halfway somewhere in North Florida, 
and have, have church with a congregation. It was fun for me, and the parents liked that I was taking this group of high school boys to church. I'll never forget stopping near Gainesville, Florida, one Wednesday night on the way down there. And, and it was just, it was nice to visit other churches to see how they did things, to take in their Bible study and all of this. But the guy that was leading the Bible study, he was down here, and they had a small group over here leading the Bible study. And me and my group of basketball boys, we sat on the back row and just took it in. And they were friendly and they were nice. But I remember about 30, 40 minutes into this thinking, this is craziness. I'm not enjoying this one bit whatsoever because they're not teaching me anything. They were simply going around and making comparisons of either different translations or different points of view given the materials that they had. Well, now mine says, and then somebody else, well, now hang on now, mine says, and then, well, hang on now, mine says, and it was just utter chaos. Now, you can, you can get somewhere doing something like that, but you have to have a leader who's willing to moderate to say, well, yours is wrong, and this one is right, and here's what the word says, and this is what it means. And the guy that was doing that did not do it very well. In the end, there has to be authority. There has to be wisdom. There has to be the experience of the master. So Jesus' parable shows us the danger of being blind to one's own thoughts and at the same time judging others. If a disciple has not learned enough to see his or her own faults and yet is judging others, how can that person truly teach or correct others? Now he's gonna get to that here in just a minute with that illustration of it'd be like me up here with a telephone pole sticking out of my eye and looking at you all and saying, I see specks in every one of your eyes and you need to come down this morning and pray and get that thing right. This is where Jesus is going here. If the teacher, the, the, the authority in the moment is a hypocrite to their own failings, well, all they're going to do is lead those that they are leading right off into a pit like a blind man leading a blind man. So let's get to that beam in your eye, verse 41. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceiveth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine own eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, then thou shalt see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. So Jesus illustrates comically here this idea of a man with a beam. And you can think of um, a construction beam. I, I just like to think about, I like the telephone poles that we have along the highway here. And I know all of you don't come from areas where they, that was a thing, but we put our, we put our, put our power lines up in the air so that the ice has a chance and the trees have a chance to knock them down. <laughs> we believe in things having a fighting chance instead of burying them under the ground. That's, just, that's a sissy way to do it. We never could use our chainsaws, right? But I mean, these huge poles, I mean, how big around is a telephone pole? It's a foot, foot and a half around at the bottom? I don't know. I'm looking at the guy from the gas company <laughs> who puts their stuff under the ground. Hooray. I, th there's some sarcastic bitterness there in my, in my mind right now, just so you're clear. But could you imagine, and how tall is a telephone pole? 30 feet? Could you imagine someone this morning with just a telephone pole sticking out of their head? Every time they turn, you're all having to duck. 
Oh, he almost got you. Oh, he almost got you again. Just destructing the walls here with this telephone pole flying all around the place. And the whole point of his being is trying to tell you about, and when I think speck, I think about salt and pepper. That one little speck of black pepper, you know? Do you ever get just one little speck of black pepper like on the side of your plate or on the table and you try to pick it up and you can't, can't get rid of it? It's annoying. So this guy with his telephone pole hanging out of his face is looking at you and saying, let me, let me get that speck out of your eye. Let me just, you can't really serve God with that kind of negative influence in your life. You've got a speck in your eye. Jesus said, this is a problematic situation. It becomes a constant issue. Surely this is the blind leading the blind because you can't see anything if you've got a beam in your eye. Jesus titles this type of sinning. He calls him a hypocrite. Verse 42, thou hypocrite, cast first the beam from your own eye, then worry about the speck in your brother's eye. What is a hypocrite? Well, based off Jesus' teaching here, a hypocrite is one who cannot see due to the log in their eye, but they're still trying to help someone get a speck out of their eye. The sin here is minimalizing your own failings, pretending that they are less than they really are. Oh, well, I struggle with this, but so does everybody else. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're dealing with this over here that they deal with, which is much worse. Oh, Jesus said, you know, you're a hypocrite. Riken writes here, when we examine our hearts, we always need to remember that our depravity is like something in the rearview mirror of a car. Objects are larger than they may appear. Many of the sins we think are splinters are really more like two by fours, if not pillars. Hmm. So there is the hypocrisy of minimizing our own sin and maximizing others' sins. And then there's a second side to this hypocrisy. Not only do we minimize and maximize, we overestimate our own ability to deal with the sinning of others. Put, put yourself in the, the receiving end of that. Here's this guy with this beam out of his eye. And he's just confident that he can, oh, he says, I, I get specks out of my eye all the time. Trust me, I can help. That's one of my favorite oxymorons. I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Now this is not to say that we are to never be a help to others or that we're never able, never to deal with the sinning of others. In fact, we, we dealt heavily throughout the summer as we studied the doctrine of the church. In Matthew's gospel, as Jesus clearly laid out for us some steps, that when we find a brother in fault, how we're supposed to restore them, how we are to help them get the speck out of their own eye. Surely we're to do this. Scripture is full of these types of references. But this instruction here that we're receiving from Jesus has to do with being 
quick to judge ourselves and being slow to judge other people. You see, only when our hearts have been broken by our own sinning, our own sinning against God, that's what we have to remember. When we sin, we've sinned against others, we've sinned against ourselves, we've sinned against our conscience. But in reality, the, the ultimate issue with our sinning is we've sinned against Almighty God who gave Himself for us on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. It's only when we're brokenhearted over our own sinning that we have the humble grace to lead somebody else in their repentance. And typically a good clue for you there is does, does that speck in their eye that you're trying to help address, does it break your heart? Is it, is it the opposite of that though? Is it, is it the boldness that you feel? And calm? Oh, I've dealt with that before. I can help them. If anybody can, it'll be me. Then you're not heartbroken enough over your own problem with that to help them with theirs. So how are we to live? Being led by one who can see what we cannot see. Examining ourselves first. And then given the instruction of a master, we can remove our beam and then help with the moat. The next thing Jesus applies here is fruit bearing. Verse 43, he says, For a good tree bringeth forth not corrupt fruit. Neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns do men not gather figs, nor of a bramble do they gather grapes. A good man out of the treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the, his mouth speaketh. The popularity of this has become less and less in recent days, but for too many years in the American church, this idea of trying to be as close to the world as possible to reach the world was popular and prevalent. And it led to people having unholy talk, unholy patterns of living, unholy ideas and actions and, and all of these things, instead of people saying, how can I be more holy in my living every single day? Well, this addresses that fully. Thorns do not produce figs. Good trees produce fruit and corrupt trees, good trees produce good fruit, corrupt trees produce corrupt fruit. Out of the, from the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. A good man will produce good fruit and an evil man will produce evil fruit. How are you living? You say, oh, well, I, well, I believe I am a Christian. Would your pattern of life confirm that? Oh, well, I'm not. And see, we can, we can take the antinomian approach here. The existentialist approach. I'm not, I'm not a legalist. I believe that under grace I can do whatever I want to do. And I'm still saved. I'm still going to heaven. And there's no set of standards I'm set to live by. Well, then you haven't read your Bible. Now, we dealt with the good side of that this morning in our Bible study in Colossians. Where that in spite of our failure up against those set of standards... And outside of a legalistic path, God has given us grace and offers us forgiveness when we sin. I like how J.C. Ryle comments here. He says, let it be a settled principle again in our religion 
that when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted. I like that settled principle. Ryle says, let us not give way to the vulgar notion that although men are living wickedly, they have got good hearts at the bottom. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? Then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. When a man's tongue is generally wrong, it is absurd no less than unscriptural to say that his heart is right. Now that hurts our feelings because often it deals with blood kin that we're clinging on to hope of that they're saved. I have close relatives who at some point in the past have made professions of faith, walked a church aisle, been baptized, gone through some religious rituals. And boy, I, I want to say, I sure hope they're not going to hell. I believe they got saved. I hope they're going to heaven. But let's look at the pattern of their living. Let's look at the fruit that they are bearing. Is it thorny or is it fruit bearing? Is it corrupt or is it holy? I think a lot of times it'd be best for us to get out of the sinner's way with our religious rituals and rites and allow God just to work on them as we conclude they're not saved. Are you standing in somebody's way this morning? Are you putting fruit in their life that's not really there? Oh, but you, you said the prayer. I was there when you were four and a half years old and they baptized you. And you know, we're Baptists, so we're, we're, we're very angry at these Presbyterians for sprinkling babies. But I've not met a Baptist mama yet who didn't want her little one to get dunked under that water as soon as humanly possible. Because it eases the mother's mind. Well, they're not going to hell. Because we've sat under some Phineism revivalistic preaching that has said, what if your car slips off in the ice on the way home and you, it catches on fire and you burn in those flames? Will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? Y'all sat through that kind of preaching? And it scares us into this urgency of something hypothetical. Do you know how much urgency there is to anything hypothetical? Zero, it's hypothetical. So <laughs> let's not sprinkle them, but let's as soon as possible dunk their heads underwater and all the adults cheer in the crowd so that this kid thinks they've done something pleasing to the adults. And let's be mad at any preacher or any elder in the church who won't go along with such things, who actually wants to sit them down and walk them down through the plan of salvation and make sure they understand what a relationship with Jesus Christ is. And I'll just tell you while, while I'm here, let me get in trouble. But I'm, just gonna, I'm already there anyways. We're a part of the Good News Clubs as a church. We, we partner with Child Evangelism Fellowship and we lead a Good News Bible Club at uh, Kingston Springs Elementary School. And then our, some of our folks do here at White Bluff Elementary School. I'm 100% for that. I think it's great. I'm so glad that we were able to take the Bible into public schools. It's surprising that that is allowed. If I was Satan, I wouldn't allow it in my school system. 
we get in trouble a lot on the administrative end of Child Evangelism Fellowship because Harpeth Baptist Church produces the worst statistics of any good, good news club that exists. Am I lying? I'm not lying. She has to take those phone calls. We are not helping the matter of twisting arms and getting professions from little children enough in these Bible clubs to make the people who oversee us to, that lead this look good. So we're killing the statistical models. I'm so glad we're an independent church. Now, we, we want to go along with anybody we partner with and try to do what is right. But first, we're going to go with what is right in the Bible. Otherwise, we'll be letting the blind lead the blind. Man, I, don't, I can't find my way back. I, I'm on a path here. The Cheshire Cat said, you didn't know where you were going when you started this. So why should I tell you which way to go here? Adam heavily medicated this morning. So you guys are kind of blurry to me just a little bit. I don't have to report to some director that said, how many professions did y'all have Sunday morning? No, I just get to report. I'm, Colby's sticking out to me over here. I'm sorry to embarrass Colby. But uh, the reason Colby Street sticks out to me because we're talking about children and coming. How old were you when you got saved, Colby? Like seven, eight? I, I did my typical model. You know, I'm going to go sit down with the parent and the child and I just want to make sure we're not talking kids into professions. And not that I assume Matt had done that. Probably Jimmy K, but not Matt. <laughs> but I, I remember sitting down with Colby, and I couldn't get my questions out fast enough. The dude was preaching me a sermon. He was sharing the gospel with me, you know? And I, I was so proud. He, I didn't have to ask. He knew what we were talking about. Now, we, we determined when we baptized Colby, all of him didn't want to go under at one time. So all the part of Colby was getting saved, I think. I, I got him down. His nose didn't want to go under. When I pushed his nose under, his knees popped up. So. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. I'm for that. But he didn't say, try to scare them to make them want to come. But there's a lot of systems out there that'll say, oh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Ah, but you can put enough salt in their feet that they'll want to drink. Fooey on that. Let the Holy Spirit lead. This is how this began. The blind can't lead the blind. They require a master. Absent the presence of the Holy Spirit. We used to sing an old song. I can't think of the name of the song now. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Brethren, we have met to worship. Was that the name of the song? It's exactly right. So fruit. What is the fruit like? Are you producing fruit or thorns? And then Jesus gives the illustration of house foundations. Verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house, he could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not as like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, which against the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So his final illustration here is house foundations. Let me, I need to finish a thought from earlier. So I will say to those of you who are volunteers in our Good News Club, our goal there is to teach young people the scriptures. 
and we're, we're dealing mostly there with children. We assume their parents don't take them to church on Sundays. So we're getting them the word outside of their parents, not getting them the word. Whether you get professions out of them is not, not even on my radar because we don't report to anybody anyways. What's on my radar is, is there a generation of children in our community that are getting the word or not getting the word? And God's word will not re- return void. So we'll let the Holy Spirit do the work there. All right, house foundations. So the house built on a rock cannot be shaken. A house built with no foundation will immediately fall. You know the song? Wise man built this house upon a rock. Wise man built this house upon a rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods went up. The rains came down and the floods went up. But the house on the rock stood firm. Foolish man built this house upon the sand. Foolish man built this house upon the sand. Foolish man built this house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. I got the kids back into this. The rains came down and the floods went up. But the house on the sand went splat. (laughs) Amen, Ruth. That's exactly right. Why we teach kids that little song? Well, because Jesus preached that. A house built on a rock won't be shaken, but a house built with a solid with no solid foundation, will immediately fall. The point being that those who listen to Jesus' teachings and obey them are choosing a solid rock foundation. Otherwise, on our own, our house will fall. And then he gives this damning accusation in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Why do we do that? Why do we call him Lord, but we don't act as if he's Lord, we act as if we're Lord? Riken writes here, when we do what Jesus says, not just hearing it, but actually obeying it, we lay a solid foundation that could withstand the trials of life. This is the main point of the parable. It is the doer, not the hearer, whose life is solid as a rock. Sproul says to call Jesus Lord is to say that he should be obeyed. It is not merely a verbal expression of allegiance to Jesus but rather readiness to act on his sayings that distinguishes the person whose house will withstand the floodstream of eschatological judgment. Jeffrey O'Hara penned these these words in a poem. You call me the way and you walk me not. You call me the life and you live me not. You call me master and you obey me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. You call me bread and eat me not. You call me truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. I'm going to turn with me to James chapter 1 for our conclusion today. In James chapter 1, verse number 22, we get a a great follow-up to what Jesus has been saying here. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Are you a doer of the word? You're obviously a hearer. You showed up on a Sunday morning. It's been snowy and iced. Now we're having warm weather and torrential rains. Seems like a smart day to stay home. But here you are to hear the word. Praise the Lord, right? But are you a doer? Verse 23 says, For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightforward, straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. 
But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James summarizes very well exactly what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Be doers of the word as well as hearers. Don't be like one who sees himself in the mirror as he starts his day, but then goes throughout his day and forgets what he looks like. You ever do that sometimes? Sometimes I forget to fix my hair. I get out of the shower and I check everything and get it just right, put my clothes on, I take off and my wife will say, well, that's an interesting hairdo. And I'll look at the mirror and, get, and I'll say, oh, I forgot to fix it. She said, well, I kind of like it. And I'll say, well, I don't. It's got to be combed just right. <laughs> I know some of you guys don't have that problem because you don't have any hairs up there. I envy you a little bit, but not on cold days. Is our religion pure? Is our religion undefiled? Or are we just legalistic religious ritualists? Comfortable in our slumber of saying, well, I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do. Now I'm going to go home and sit around and do nothing until Jesus returns. Oh, James says pure religion looks like this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. Jesus gives us here some supreme blessings. He offers them then and he offers them to us now. And we can experience this heavenly happiness and true blessedness which only he can give. But only as we live in a relationship with him. So I'll give you the words of H.A. Ironside who said we cannot live the life until we first possess the life. I want to encourage you with a few things here as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, be sure you're saved. Are you in a relationship actively with Jesus Christ? I, I didn't ask, have you been baptized? I didn't ask, is your name on a church roll? Did you say some prayer at some point? My question to you was this this morning, and I want you to answer honestly within yourself and correct it if not. Are you actively in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you talked to Him today? Did you and Him talk yesterday? Did you, did you commune? Did He speak to you through His Word? Do you speak to Him in prayer? Is your life being led by Him seriously as a master with a slave? Did He tell you what to do? Or are you, are you running the show? Are you in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Secondly, I want you to consider this morning. Is my life being blessed with these supreme blessings that Jesus talked about? Or am I happy with just these temporal things? See, if we're not careful, we'll get to where we're just fine with temporal things. Uh, I'm, I really get interested in these movies that we have now on TV. They're documentaries about the food industry in America and how we've become the McDonald's generation. And they'll show shelves in other countries that have not embrace the poor food habits that we have as Americans. And, I, and I'm not saying this, I'm not being a hypocrite this morning. I love McDonald's. I'm just, I'm aware that I probably shouldn't. Well, not probably, I really should not. Yeah, but a Big Mac, mm, it's delicious. 
I wish they'd go back to salting their fries to an unhealthy level, but you know, they can't have that many people dying from their food. But you see the, these stores in other countries where they'll show like, you know, food from Mexico and food from here. Food, and when they show food from America, have y'all seen this? It's, it's hilarious. Reese's Cups and Rolos. All this preservative-filled sweet junk food. That's not, nothing real food there. Well, we used to not be that way. Brother Don Sable, the old preacher who preached our revival a few summers back from Mississippi. Y'all remember him? He talked like a Mississippi gentleman, real slow and deliberate and everything he said. He stayed next door. Mom and dad had just moved away and Brother Homer's house was open there. So he stayed there that week while he was there. So I'd go over and pick his brain every morning. And he'd say, did you have breakfast? I said, yeah, I had some cereal. And he said, oh, man. He would say, the old farmers used to tell him, that cereal will get you out of the house in the morning, but it won't bring you back in the afternoon. We've done that to our faith, you know. We've gotten happy with the, the quick and the easy. Why, why are we so adamant about church attendance? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm your preacher. I'm glad you're adamant about church attendance. But some of you this morning, like you, you made sure you were here, you made sure you put your check in the back, you made sure you got to your seat, you make sure that everything was just so, so that you could go, why? I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying... I want you to question yourself, why are you doing this? I think we fold ourselves into thinking that is our relationship with Christ. Now those things should be the fallout from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I'm in a relationship with Him, I love coming over here and singing hymns with other Christians. And I'm so happy to be able to give a portion of the funds that He's blessed me with back to the, to the betterment of this congregation and the needs that are here. Or world evangelism for that matter. But it's not a checklist. So consider this morning, number one, am I truly in a relationship with Christ? Number two, am I living for the temporal or the eternal blessing, the supreme blessings, the beatitudes? You can truly be rich in this world when you're happy but not being rich at all. And you can be rich or poor, either one. It's a state of mind. Let's stand and pray. Blessings and woes. Woe to us if we're content with the temporal. Blessings on us if we're only content with those things that are eternal.